The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. We've got a really busy show with lots of people today. Uh, my name is Yosra Osman and joining me we've got Lorcan O'Neill, Luke Irwin, Henry Jordan, Hello. Emma Marchant, Hi there. Ashley Whitaker Hello. and Stuart Pask. Hello. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. Loads of people here. So, six very different films today. We've got Spielberg's The Fablemans, Brendan Fraser led The Whale, Chaotic Nuptials in Shotgun Wedding, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, a documentary, um, Gerard Butler action film, Plane, and new Netflix comedy. She says soon in You people. So, plus, we are going to be treating you with plenty of Oscar chat as the nominations were only announced think last Tuesday? I don't know, the day's all blur. But plenty to get on with. Let's start with some Spielberg. Movies are dreams. That you never forget. Sammy? to change how everything looks it's hard to find our house ours is the dark house with no lights in this family it's the scientists versus the artists In The Fablemans, this fictional but semi-autobiographical story from Spielberg is about the young Sammy Fableman who falls in love with the art of cinema and, start to and starts to make films of his own against the backdrop of some family friction. Um, Luke, let's start with your thoughts. Now, I'm, I've been looking at the... Before I went to see it, I was looking at the reviews a lot for The Fablemans and in the US in particular... Critics absolutely adored this film. You know, like lots and lots of praise being thrown at it for Spielberg. Maybe not so much in the UK from what I've seen. What's your take? I think that's a pattern that we're seeing with a lot of these Oscar films. And I think it is because this is a film that really appeals to nostalgia value. This is a... Um, obviously, it's considered the film that Spielberg spent his entire career planning to build, being a semi-autobiographical film. And perhaps the issue here is that the film is trying to have its cake and eat it too. It's, all, it's a fictional film, it's Sammy Fableman, but the film really works because every time someone says Sam, Sammy Fableman, the audience is supposed to hear the word Steven Spielberg. Mm. No one, you know, the, the film is discussing the, sort of the, the coming of age of Sammy and his love of cinema, but it doesn't do enough to make us think, why do we care about Sammy Fableman? The film exists purely seemingly, um, to focus on, you know, the wink and the nod and go, oh, this is Steven Spielberg. Mm. And I think that appeals a lot to the, perhaps more of a Atlantic audience. Um, I think that in this part of the, you know, we've, we've been inundated with these sorts of films and perhaps some people are starting to lose their patience with them. Okay, interesting. Ashley, I mean... Um how did you find it? Were you able to separate this film from the fact that it is Spielberg? It's quite a personal film to him, or so we've been told. What about just as a pure as a pure piece of storytelling? I forgot quite a lot throughout it that it was Steven Spielberg's life story because there was so little about 
how he got into filmmaking and his love of it, I felt, and that's what I wanted. It's a lot more Michelle Williams's story and her son and having to grapple with the two of them knowing this secret. So I, I did really forget it was a Steven Spielberg mm -hmm. thing to its detriment. I would have liked what I thought I was going to see much better. Okay, you've mentioned Michelle Williams here. I'm going to turn to Lorcan at this point because... Lorcan, I think you saw it last night, didn't you? And yes, yeah. and um, tell us what your thoughts were. Um, well, I mean, the film opens up with a uh, young Spielberg uh, trying to film a train wreck. And I think 80 years later, he's probably achieved that dream, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, star star starting with the performances, you got Paul Dano, who's wandering around like an extra on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And you got Michelle Williams, who's auditioning for Days of Our Lives. <laughs> um, and, and then you've got and they're both good actors but they're just they're, they seem to not really know what they're doing here and then you've got Seth Rogen who's horribly miscast um, and you've got teenage Spielberg who's alright I think the stars for me were the, the sisters throughout yeah. the film seem to he's clearly got a, love, a lot of love for his sisters and those performances shone through um, there's uh, every scene seems to be going for two or three tones that are completely unjustified by motivations. It's all a very strange film. I think the problem is it's just too close. He says it's not. It's a. It's a film about memory, and to me, these memories are a little too perfect. They, there's the young Spielberg is just kind of perfect and absolutely nails everything he does first try, and it's just like Luke kind of um, impl implied. There's just nothing here to latch on to with that main character. He's just kind of perfect and put upon and just dealing with all this turmoil that just kind of doesn't go anywhere, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I think for me, and I'll be interested to know what any of you think here, but the bits that worked for me were not when we were getting into the sentimentality of his relationships with his family and the, the so-called turmoil that was happening there, but actually when you saw... Sammy Fableman doing filmmaking when he's when he's filmmaking and when he's showing his work and you see the reactions of the audience watching it there I thought there was was a nice touch anybody else I mean it's it nice but nice doesn't make get you an Oscar nomination um, <laughs> but this did get Oscar it shouldn't get you an Oscar nomination I think like nice in parts like when we, we see some of the more charming aspects of um, Sammy Fableman's relationship with the uh, with his with his girlfriend that he develops over the second half of the film it's nice but it doesn't have much substance it feels like a lot of what um these or you know letters of these spielberg films and sort of the uh, you know the people that have been inspired by him it's just a nostalgia machine it's like going oh wasn't the past fun look how fun the past was it's like this this isn't a story I did like the attempts as well at, again, very shallow with, I think, Yossi, you described her the best. Michelle Williams is playing a manic pixie dream mom and she's really kind of stuck inside that stereotype. But Spielberg is trying to explain how difficult that personality is inside a woman in that era. You can't be kooky, you can't be a creative, your life is so stifling, you don't get to be who you want. And the nostalgia bit that I really liked and what I thought the whole film was going to be was that excellent final scene where he gets to meet this big-time film director and he just wants advice from him. That was Hollywood magic. This is what gets people into directing films. And it was three seconds right at the end of the film. I will, I will say that that's definitely the highlight at the very end as well. Judd Hirsch has one scene, and I love Judd Hirsch, and that one scene is particularly good and effective. Okay, so... 
I think what people are saying here is, is see it for the end scene, maybe, <laughs> but not much the sisters else. And the, end. <laughs> and the sisters who aren't in it very much, but when they are, they they do shine. So, okay, make of that what you will, everybody. Um, the Fablemans is showing at cinemas across Cambridgeshire at the moment, and it is a certificate. Twelve A. On to our next film, and that is Darren Aronofsky's The Whale. I know these rules can feel constraining, but remember, the point of this course is to learn how to write clearly and persuasively. Think about that. Think about the truth of your argument. You're an amazing person, Ellie. I couldn't ask for a more incredible daughter. Are you actually trying to parent me right now? Who would want me to be a part of their life? You don't stay in touch with mom? She really only tells me things about you. Why? Because that's all I want to know about. Why'd you gain all that weight? Someone close to me passed away. Darren Aronofsky directs Brendan Fraser in The Whale, a film about Charlie, who Brendan Fraser plays, an online English teacher who has severe obesity after a tragic event. Um, after a sudden realisation, he decides that he wants to reconnect with his daughter, who's played by Sadie Sink, you might recognise her from things like Stranger Things, um, to find redemption. Emma, um, so this film, it, again, it's one that critics, well, some critics, have really launched praise at, particularly for Brendan Fraser's performance as Charlie. Now, I want to ask, if you take that performance, but look at the film holistically, is there more to it than perhaps what we see in terms of those strong performances? <clears throat> Not for me, I didn't find. I must admit, you're right, it's really hard. It's hard to go into this without kind of having a judgment clouded because this has been such a huge story of Brendan Fraser coming back from, you know, the depths of where Hollywood sort of chewed him up and spat him out and... <clears throat> and rightfully so, because he seems like a very decent and, and sweet human being. And it is a very decent and sweet performance at the heart of this film. But I wasn't expecting that. I did not know before I went in that it's an adaptation of a play. If I want to go and see a play, I'll go and see a play on the stage. I do not like to go to the cinema and see something so resolutely uncinematic. It is... You know, I mean, obviously the, the story is, like you said, you know, he's, he's suffering from huge obesity. He's cut himself off from the world. So due to the logic of that, this film is going to be set in pretty much one room with the few people that he allows into his life coming in and out. I just felt that the dialogue was stagey to the extent that I felt none of none of them felt like they talked or acted like real people. It's, it's a pretty small cast, apart from Hong Chow, who has been rightfully nominated for a supporting actress, who is um his sort of nurse. This is Charlie's nurse and um, ex sister in law, and she was the only person who sort of spoke like like someone real. The rest of them just talked. It felt a bit like I don't know, leaving Las Vegas with food meets sort of Dead Poet Society because he's trying to inspire his students and his daughter as well to become better writers and better people and to appreciate their their potential. I think it's really well-meaning. It's not what I would have expected at all from Darren Aronofsky, having seen, you know, some of his previous stuff like Requiem for a Dream or Pie or um, The Fountain. It, it, it was a surprising choice for me, but I am a bit... As a film, it, it just didn't stand out for me. Stand up for me, sorry. It's interesting you talk about how it was a stage play because I was like you. I knew nothing about the source material when I went to see this film last night and I was watching it and I thought, all the way through, I thought, this just screams 
play. It must be a play. It must have been a play. And as we now know, it is. Um, I want to just come round, Henry, to perhaps Aronofsky's direction here. And if he handles this, I want to say sensitively enough, given the character of Charlie. Well... You can kind of tell this is a change in direction from Aronofsky. Like, he's he's famous for having these, like, big, over-the-top, like, grotesqueries, almost. Like, if you think back to, I think, Mother was his last... Sorry, Mother was his last film. <laughs> um, and that was just, you know, two hours of, of nonsense on screen, but, like, full-tilt nonsense. And this, he's kind of... He's pulled it back, which I think is to the detriment of the film because it adds to that stagey feeling by kind of removing that cinematic flair that Aronofsky can do. He just strips it down so there's only the dialogue left. And I think also, you kind of need that over-the-top grotesquerie. The thing that I love about Aronofsky's films, like Requiem for a Dream or like Black Swan, is that they they take their kind of stories of addiction and of struggle to such ridiculous extremes that you're not really meant to take them as real. You're just meant to kind of treat them almost as horror films, like they are on a plane above reality. And I think that allows for like a lack of subtlety to be there. Whereas as soon as you strip it back and soon as you just rely on just the dialogue and just the actors, you really have to nail the sensitivity of the issues you're dealing with. And I did not get that. I felt like we were being asked to ogle and being asked to feel disgust for Charlie. I, this felt like a freak show to me where we were just told, look at the whale. And it's interesting, you talk about how Aronofsky scaled that back, but there are a couple of moments in the film where he does exaggerate a little more and that just kind of maybe, Lorcan, I'm coming to you, mm -hmm. is is not in keeping with the rest of the film. So that means that it almost kind of makes a mockery of Charlie, perhaps. Oh, I, I think there's, uh, if anything, I think you can uh, say the film is too sentimental towards Charlie. Um, I, think, I, I think this isn't, for me, this isn't unusual, Stefan Aronofsky. He always, he clearly likes delving into like the sympathetic psychology of these characters in trouble and Charlie kind of fits into that rogues gallery of characters that he's had in a lot of his films. Uh, I, I think th while the directing is a lot is staged uh, pulled back a lot there's still a lot of uh, ambiance there's lots of atmosphere there's lots of good shots but it, he just leaves room for the performers to perform and for me this is one of those films like uh, Doubt or Carnage where it's like it's not about the directing it is about the performances and it's a way for everyone in the world to see this 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 series of performances cobbled together but adding this kind of director's atmosphere and for me it all worked and i th i thought i thought it again i if any if there's any criticism i think we maybe too much sympathy is shred on charlie um but i was i was all there for the ride um i I love Brendan Fraser, but I tried to put that in the back burner and be like, how is this performance? I think the film does rely on a lot of the nostalgia for Brendan Fraser, but um, no one kind of, no one missed a step here, I don't think. Stuart, um, I'll come to you. We started looking at this holistically, as I said, but let's go into the performances, which Lorcan has touched on a little bit. Um, Brendan Fraser, who really had, did, I thought, did quite a lot without not, perhaps being very mobile and carries a lot with his performance. You've also got people like Hong Chow, who, as Emma said, really brought some of the heart to the film. What, what stood out for you? So I think your choice of words carries as a performance is a very uh, uh, apt one because obviously one of the parts that helps him sort of get into the role is the amount of uh, makeup and prosthetics he wears um, for this film. And 
heaven knows how heavy it was to wear but I'm sure that must have aided him in his performance of someone who is morbidly obese um, and he had to carry that around with him on set so that must have had a had a weight to it that helped him performance and to really get into get into the shoes of someone um, a recluse who is in that situation um, and and that sort of really sort of came across for me I mean so away from that I'd say that um, if Avatar is something like Avatar is a glossy brochure for like all of the cinema effects that you get with motion capture and CGI then this is more of a sort of a, a sample brochure of all of those things like your sort of body horror um, your sort of prosthetics your makeup and stuff and it's just a different side and even though like Emma says it's not a particularly cinematic film you do get to see some of those practical effects come into play and I think that's where one of the areas this film really shines if it's not truly a cinematic experience thank you and um luke in terms of i think it was emma who was talking about that this is quite a stagey film um and talking about the dialogue was it perhaps too contrived for you or did you go along with this contrived isn't necessarily the right um term to describe this film i think as has been alluded um, technically pretty solid performances and Brendan Fraser is getting the plaudits here, but he's probably the third best performer. I think Hong Chao is terrific, and I think Samantha Morton turns up for five minutes and is just wonderful. Um, Brendan Fraser is is pretty solid, but it's quite hard to determine, you know, how much of this performance is acting, and you know how much of it is just he's an incredibly obese man, and we don't really see that that often. I think the issue here is that the source material is it's a badly written stage play that's been turned into an adequate film. I think the the thing that, that connects this with um, Aronofsky's previous films is his obsession with this Old Testament stuff. I mean, this is so Old Testament sort of the, the whale alludes both to um, Moby Dick quite explicitly throughout the film, but also to this aspect of um, Brendan Fraser being sort of um, no, we're eaten by the whale in the Old Testament and now he's sort of stuck in the belly of this apartment that he can't leave. And it's fine, but um, it doesn't really... You know, it's quite a sophomoric view of literary analysis and they're sort of mirrored by Brendan Fraser as an English teacher just telling people to write something real. That's, his, that's the extent of his English literature. You know, it's just, oh, be real, be real. And the film, it is, you know... Does it capture reality to some extent? It's certainly not contrived. It's just quite dull. I was going to say, though, it's interesting you talked about Darren Aronofsky and the, the way he takes things to a horror level. What I did notice is the soundtrack. There's a scene where um, Brendan Fraser is choosing to eat, and it's and actually you said as well that, that you thought that we were being you, you, you know it's like disgust, and I didn't ever feel disgust for Charlie. And one of the most poignant bits in it is the pizza guy who's been delivering his pizza for, for ages, and he never wants him to come inside. And on the last time, he he goes over to the door and picks up the pizza, and the pizza guy is there, and the look of sort of horror and revulsion on this pizza guy's face that was about the only time i felt touched but what i'm trying to say is he shoots all the scenes where he's eating kind of like a horror movie with incredibly horrific soundtrack as if to say look look what's happening it's a bit yeah that, so you're right there are some touches in there but it's contextualized to those specific scenes yeah though, yeah yeah but so I look there are touches so look at that i'm coming around yeah. to it i think that's quite a naive view of sort of the main character's psychopathy because basically the film is you know fat man is fat and his fatness is the um 
sort of the the externalization of his sadness like he eats through shame and he's shamed about himself but we never really get under- I think he's essentially suicidal as well yeah, isn't he I think that's yeah, the whole think, like this yeah. is why I thought of leaving Las yeah. Vegas he's so, making it you know his friend all his friends and family yeah. know what he's doing and he's like this is what I'm doing so, yeah the eating is sort of a function of sort of self-harm in it some yeah. like, there's an aspect yeah. where, where he, you know he suddenly learns that being fat is bad for him and he googles blood pressure and he learns that's terrible and then he goes and eats a chocolate bar it's like it's you know, um, stigmata stuff going on here. But I don't think, you know, we never really get, like, why? Why is this? It's alluded to throughout the film that something bad has happened to him in the past and now he's coped with it by overeating. But I think that came through quite clear I, for me. I thought it was pretty explicit, the yeah. whole oh, yeah, it's, it's, The backstory builds. Yeah, it's, yeah me it, too. It builds on the character it's expli- Yeah, but, but everyone has bad things happen to them, not everyone puts on 600 pounds. I mean, this was a series of particularly bad things that happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I think the film does try to explore other themes that come into play here. And actually, I quite liked that it was touching on other things because that's not what I expected. And Lorcan, I, I think I'm just going to give the last word to you because you enjoyed this film and you, you, you perhaps are a little bit more positive than other people around the table. Um, how did you think do, it did with those different themes that explored in terms of things like religion, sexuality, um loss i think it was all it was all just handled for, for me i thought it was tasteful thoughtful it, it never felt exploited at any point the more you find out about the characters the more it builds in the themes the more it builds in the themes the more the more it builds in the dramas until everything kind of comes together at the end um and i think it's it's hard to i think i do think all the performances are great and it's hard to single out any one performance because they all work so well together it's an ensemble you can't i don't think you can just take this this person might not have been as good if this person hadn't been giving them the right kind of cues and that kind of thing so i think the whole thing works very well as a solid piece of theatrical cinema (laughs) (laughs) okay um so the whale is currently showing in cinemas right now you can go and see it it is a certificate 15. Now to something that you can see at home on Amazon Prime. This is Shotgun Wedding. The strands in your eyes, they color them one. I've been looking forward to this moment ever since baby Tommy was cut out of my abdomen. Uh-uh. Cheers, everybody. Emeralds from mountains, frost from the sky, never revealing their death. It's time. To the pool! They were pirates, and they took everybody hostage. Where is the father of the pride? Robert! Robert, they're calling you. Thanks a lot, Carol. Here's the plan. We're gonna head to the next island for help. On my count, ten, nine... Why are you counting from ten? What is this, a rocket launch? Okay, fine, on four. This weekend hasn't exactly gone to plan. Pirates chasing you wasn't on your vision board. You're the only thing on my vision board. Is that blood? Shotgun Wedding stars Josh Duchamel and Jennifer Lopez as Darcy and Tom, a couple about to get married on a gorgeous island in the Philippines. But everything radically starts to fall apart when their whole wedding party are taken hostage. And they got to go save everyone. Um, Emma! Oh, Back again! <laughs> Back again, Emma! Well, very it's just, different it, film. It's just you, me and Lorcan, and this is a very, very different film. Now, it's straight on Amazon Prime. Um, you can get a sense of what's going to happen if you see 
the trailer. Uh, is it kind of what you expected? Yeah, I think we need to say from the very beginning that this probably is riding a post-White Lotus Jennifer Coolidge wave. I think, I, I mean, I was, we, we I put this forward for the show and I must admit a large part of that is because I'm, I'm excited to see Jennifer Coolidge do anything and I wasn't disappointed. Also, it is a pretty, you know, J, I mean, J-Lo's huge, guys. It's a starry cast. Josh Duhamel was put in um, after Army Hammer was removed for reasons. Also, you've got Lenny Kravitz, you've got Sheesh Marin, you've got Sonia Braga, who I haven't seen since she played Samantha Jones's lesbian lover in um, Sex and the City many moons ago, and I was surprised. I, I felt very old when I saw her. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by this film. I, I must admit, I, I think I texted you while I was furious at the beginning, so I was like, "How can they cast Jennifer Coolidge at sixty as Josh Duhamel's mother, who is only fifty? Patriarchy strikes again, and he's meant to be forty years old, but he—I know—he's so he's playing this sort of sensitive bass baseball player, and J Lo has this. Sorry, J Lo, who's playing Darcy, has this sort of incredibly sexy ex-fiance who basically is Lenny Kravitz playing Lenny Kravitz who arrives in a helicopter uninvited to their wedding. Similar to Cher in Mamma Mia 2, Ash. That's a stand-up for you. Um, it's not really. They're having cold feet. Then the pirates come, which is all quite dark. I mean, there's some, some, some quite kind of dark violence in there. It's a weird mix of sort of screwball comedy. I guess it's trying to show you this kind of screwball 50s physical comedy, which it turns out Jennifer Lomez and, and Josh Duhamel, they didn't have much kind of sexual chemistry. I did feel they had quite fun, zippy chemistry. Although, having said that, it does get to a point, one point, where they're just moaning to each other about what they've done wrong in their relationship. And I was like, oh, it, there are some bits where it feels like it's marriage counselling in the Philippines. But it was more fun than I was expecting, and every scene Jennifer Coolidge in was worth it. And, yeah, it's, um, it, it just was... It's fun. It's, I, I think Amazon Prime occasionally turns up some unexpected delights. I don't know if this is quite unexpected, but I think it's a lot better than the other. I mean... <coughs> ineffably better than the next streaming choice we're going to talk about <laughs> at the end of the show. Um, so from that point of view, I think it knows its audience and it aims for it and I, it was pretty zippy and pretty fun. Yeah, look, and I think I found this a little bit of a tale of two halves because the first half I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I see where this is going sort of. And then the second half was quite fun actually and it's a certificate 18. There's some stuff in there that I, I did not expect and did you quite enjoy that? Yeah, no, I think I... I I almost turned it off halfway through because the jokes just weren't landing. It's a wedding party in the Philippines and then it gets taken over. Uh, everyone gets taken hostage by pirates and it's like, this is random. Like, the, the, the main characters aren't CIA agents or, like, ex-cops or anything. It's just completely random. But then... Um, Halfway through, you find out that Josh Duhamel's characters got the island on the cheap because the exact same thing happened the previous year. And I was like, oh, that's a really funny joke. And then Jennifer Lopez drops a grenade on two guys and they explode in very graphic <laughs> nature. I was like, oh, okay. Now the plot has started from the second half. Um, so, yeah, it is. I think if you suffer through the first half, the second half has a lot of good practical effects, explosions, gore, uh, a good sense of humor. Uh and yeah, all the, all the performances are good. I think Jennifer Coolidge, I think there's a couple of lines that don't work, but she's definitely the star of the show. And I actually thought um, Dohamel and Lopez had a little bit of sexual chemistry. I, I, they, definitely had, they definitely had chemistry chemistry. I, I, I bought them as a couple. I wasn't sure, but yeah, the, the very first scene there where he's, he's done all this cheap and he's having to make the um, centerpieces himself. And you're really meant to believe that he's going to sort of continue putting fairy lights on pineapples while someone who looks like Jennifer Lopez is lying <laughs> on the bed trying to tempt him in there. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think with this film, you know, you're not going to go in watching this on 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 your TV thinking you're about to get a five star kind of ambitious spectacle of modern cinema. This is just some good fun to kind of warm up your February, right? 
Well, exactly. I think we review, you know, we, we, we try and review a fair amount of streamers on this show. And obviously it is a very different experience and these films that these are films that are being made for different reasons and for different audiences than, than cinema films. So it's not worth saying, oh, would you bother paying to go and see this in cinema? That decision's already been made, been made for you. It's on a streamer. And I think compared to some of the utter dross that we have um, reviewed that end up that ends up on streaming with big budgets and big stars this was a really pleasant surprise and the I think it's the Dominican Republic that's standing in for the Philippines but also like you say it's a nice location for early February so the location is also a bit of a star of the show. It does. It does suffer from the the Netflix, Amazon Prime originals of are these? Is it just a bunch of celebrities on holiday and they filmed this show? I filmed the film around it, which I it, I did get that vibe as well. But there's there's not really much green screen or special effects, and it feels like they put a lot of effort into it. So. I hope they all had a lovely holiday. They made a pretty decent <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I concur. There's a really cool scene with Jennifer Coolidge when she so when she realizes she's like we have to humanize ourselves to the kidnappers, and I really enjoyed that. There are some really funny bits in it. Perfect. So I think that's a hit with with our team. So if you want to watch Shotgun Wedding, it is on Amazon Prime. As we mentioned earlier, it is a certificate eighteen. Cambridge 105 Radio. Every Saturday night on Cambridge 105 Radio, Chris Brown presents Cambridge's original Saturday Night Soul Show. It's a fantastic thing. I'm Cambridge bred and born, and so I present my show and play my soul and dance music in Cambridge. People that listen to my show, then they'll go out to one of my gigs, and when I get there, people will say, oh, that track you played on your show, can you play it tonight? It's like a gang, if you like, that I've got on a Saturday night of soul fans. Chris Brown's Soul and Dance Show, Saturdays at 6 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Nick Wohm's Professional Painting and Decorating Services is your local award-winning decorating business with a great reputation. Our professional and friendly team can cover all aspects of decorating for domestic, commercial and industrial properties. So whether it's a bedroom makeover or an entire office block that needs repainting, we'll get the job done on budget and on time. Check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Nick Wohm's Professional Painting and Decorating Services to see pictures of our work. Or call us today on 07794 516 291. Cambridge 105 Radio. The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. This is the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. We have just discussed three films and we've got three more to go, as well as Oscar's chat, so we better get on with it. Next up, we are talking about all the beauty and the bloodshed. Nobody photographs their own life. Dance, dance, dance. The photographer, Nan Golden, she's a major name in the art world. The work was incredibly political. It was about power and particularly about the power that men have over women and how that power is translated up in society. 100,000 dead! 100,000 dead! There's the Sackler family of the art world, the museum world, and philanthropy. And then there's the big pharma marketing and addiction and death. My anger at the Sackler family, it's personal when you think of the... So All the Beauty and the Bloodshed that's um, by director Laura Potra and a documentary exploring the life and work of Nan Golden, a renowned photographer who took great effort to hold Purdue Farmer and owners the Sackler family accountable for the opioid endemic, which caused... Um, 
the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans due to over-prescription of opioids from, from the 1990s sort of onwards. Um, that, that's as much as I knew about this film, and I haven't seen it, but I know that our two reviewers who have seen it here, Ashley and Henry, really, really loved this film. Ashley, I think you said to me off-show off that this, this is your kind of bag. Oh, I love this. And it's Victoria, another reviewer of ours, it was her favourite thing at the Cambridge Film Festival. This is my favourite thing so far this year short year favorite thing <laughs> of the last year and this year probably i loved it i didn't know about the sacroflammy link until the day i went to see it and that's how i lured my partner to come and see it with me because he likes that i am just a sucker for studio 54 era new york and i got a lot of that i loved that element of it as well um as, as mentioned with the kind of summary henry this is the story of nan golden who I didn't really know much about, but apparently really shines through in this film. Oh, yeah, no, I was in the same boat as you, yours. Like, I, Nan Gordon wasn't someone I'd heard of at all before this film. Um, but I'm not, like, into the kind of art world particularly, so that wasn't a surprise. Um, and I think what the film does really well is, it is these kind of dual narratives that, like, interweave and kind of overlap with each other about, not just as Ash said, the kind of battle with the Sackler family and the, the kind of reckoning with the opioid crisis, but then also just Golden's life and her art, which again, are interweaved and are like impossible to tear apart from each other. And as someone who isn't familiar with Nan Golden, I think one of the exceptional things that this film does is it really just kind of lets her art speak. There are these moments where it's just these kind of slideshows of pictures she's taken of her or her friends or, or the New York scene in the 70s, just letting them speak. There's not even any music. Like There's an incredible use of silence in this film. And for a cinematic release, that's so, I don't know. Risky. So, so risky, so challenging that, like, you're just making people sit there in silence while there is no noise around them, but it works incredibly. And I I just kind of left this, and it's exactly what you want from a documentary where you, you know nothing about the subject going in and you leave the documentary going, I have to find out every single thing about this person. I have to see every bit of art she's ever made. And you yeah. just fall in love with the world that you've been you know invited into it sounds like golden from what you've been saying but also what i briefly read that that she's fascinating enough as a as a subject on her own but i want to talk you've touched on it henry a little bit about poitra's direction and how she tells this story and and how that works to the film's credit ashley that the um Everything Henry said about the photography is dead on. And if you're not part of the art world, you suddenly get, you understand why photography is so important because they set you up. They're kind of, it's several acts and several periods of her life. And you get such a sense of what the city was like in that decade, what her relationships were like, what politics was like. And then they show you that silent reel of photographs and you're like, ah, oh, that's what she's captured. That's what she's doing. So that did work brilliantly. And I really loved how they split it up into the time periods. And there's a strange kind of sensation. I knew it was going to be horrible stories, but I was so looking forward to when we got to the AIDS crisis in New York, because I knew they were going to be fantastic people that she was friends with, amazing art that she made around those stories. And you're kind of just waiting to be pulled through decade by decade by decade in this city and seeing how the world changes and how she responds to it, it was brilliantly laid out in that way. And of course, blending the personal here with the political yeah absolutely well you know that's that's the thing that this kind of documentary is about it's that the personal and the political are not two separate things they mm -hmm. are one and the same and i think this documentary is kind of a perfect 
like it, its form is the exact same as Golden's are in the it just it says you to kind of make sure that these stories keep getting told you have to keep looking you have to preserve the truth because if we don't then that's how the fictionalized stories continue that's how people like the Sacklers can continue to kind of spread their benevolence as opposed to own up to the the crisis and I just think it's such a kind of I don't know it's it's a cringe thing to say almost but it's such a, a brave piece of filmmaking yeah I you know well it starts with her saying I asked a friend what's going to happen to me and they said you're going to lose your entire career yeah, I mean, we kind of often joke that, like, often on the show you have to kiss, like, a few frogs to kind of get the, like, golden bunny as far as, like, your films go for a week. There was not a lot I enjoyed this week, but this film kind of made them all worth it. Yeah. Complete groundbreaking moving sits with you. You don't need to be into art. You don't need to know anything about the opioid crisis. You don't have to care about American politics. It's so good. Okay, well, I think that's a really great way to end that review. Thank you, Ashley and Henry. Um, that was the documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Is is it still showing at the picture house? It yeah. is, yeah. yeah. The light scene as well. And it's coming to the light scene. Thank you very, very much. And that is a certificate 18 as well. Okay, now we're going to something very, very different. Um, and we're going to be talking about the latest Netflix comedy, You People. It is so nice to meet you guys. What's going on? Tell me about life. How are you? How's work? So you want to marry my daughter? Yes. Yes, I do. So do you hang out in the hood all the time or do you just come up here for our food and women? It's a valid question. It is. What's the difference between me and you? If Amir and I had a baby, it would be a very nice baby. Mixed race people are really awesome. You know, you have like Mariah and... Derek Jeter, and then of course you have the, the goat. The goat. The greatest of all time. Yeah, I know what it means, but who are you referring to? Uh, our guy, the legend, Malcolm X. What in the mother? What's the difference between me and you? Directed by Kenya Barris, who you may know from things like Blackish or Black AF, and this is his feature film debut. Um, you People is about a relationship between new couple Jonah Hill and Lauren London, who play Ezra and Amira. And they come from two different cultural backgrounds. Um, Ezra comes from a, a Jewish background and Amira is from a black Muslim background. Um, and they kind of have to face up to these differences when it's time to play meet the parents, particularly when it comes to Amira's father, who's played by Eddie Murphy, who doesn't really take to Ezra, and um, Ezra's mother, who is played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who kind of treats Amira a bit like a novelty. Um, who would like to speak about this first? I think I will pick Luke. Um, Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> what an honour. Okay, so this is one of very, like, many, many Netflix romantic comedies to grace our TV screens. Does this one on offer anything different? Um, if lowering the bar counts as being different, and it's a very low bar to begin with, I don't understand what this film is trying to do. The film establishes a straw man at the start, which is essentially that interracial relationships aren't possible because the two races are just too different. And it hammers this point home repeatedly. Um, and then at the very end, the characters suddenly realise that, oh, wait, no, it turns out that that's uh, not true. And so? It took two hours to get to this point. I didn't... I mean, it would be, if there were some jokes in the middle, that would have been great, but... Um, no. Were there were there any jokes? Did anyone laugh at all, Emma? 
I spent this entire film just thinking I would not want to spend more than a minute in the company of any of these people. Not a single one of them. The characters are so odious. Oh, apart from I did smile when David Duchovny, playing Jonah Hill's father, started playing John Legend's... <laughs> What's the song? Ordinary beautiful people, people. Ordinary, ordinary, ordinary people. people at the piano to his, you know, when 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 Lauren London comes over as his new black Muslim girlfriend, he starts singing ordinary people. I did smile at that, but in general, it just it was co-written by Jonah Hill as well, and I yeah. don't know if Jonah Hill has written any any other. I find Jonah Hill quite a problematic screen presence anyway. And again, talking about weird casting, Julia Louis Dreyfus, who looks amazing, and we're meant to buy again that she's his mother because Jonah Hill, I think is playing a 35 year old in this and he's actually about 40 41 in real life but my goodness he looks like he looks about 50 he just looks rough they start and, and, and i i just struggle again i'm like that just see so no it, it, these people are odious they're all awful the writing is awful there, there's no like like luke said that you know you're meant to believe from the beginning that in 2022 that it's impossible to have a mixed race relationship which is patently not true and then at the end you're meant to believe that they all realize how awful they've been and it oh it, it was horrendous and i've watched i liked blackish for the first kind of maybe four or five seasons and i found it started to get a little bit more bitter and a little bit there was a little bit more any relationships i think and then black af I also struggled with. So I'm not sure if I'm maybe just not really a Kenya Barris. I didn't realise it was Kenya Barris until the end. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I think... I don't know what the fi- I don't know if the film was trying to say that interracial relationships don't work. I think the film was trying to say that if you're in an interracial relationship that you need to be aware of certain cultural differences and sometimes there can be issues that come from that that you need to work through. However, if that did not come across to our reviewers here then clearly it the film didn't do a very good job of that. Um I'm going to stay quiet for a little bit on what I thought of it, but it's a romantic comedy, right? And at the center of this you've got Jonah Hill and you've got Lauren London. Do they work as the central romantic relationship here? Regardless of whatever you ask me, I was going to complain about the fact that the problem here isn't that the husband-to-be is white and the wife-to-be is black. It's that they don't like each other or get on <laughs> or have any sexual chemistry, not even friend chemistry. <laughs> Jonah Hill has more sexual chemistry, I'd say, in Channing Tatum in the two twenty-one, twenty-one, and 22 Jump Street films. It's, they just, they're like... They're like sort of estranged cousins who are forced to spend time together and live together. They hate each other. There's a couple of brilliant bit parts played by actual good actors. So Sam Jay, who's a writer on Saturday Night Live, plays Jonah Hill's best friend and podcast co-host. And Molly Gordon, who I loved in Booksmart, plays um, his little sister. So those two people are quite funny. They seem better well no they had, don't seem better written because it's it's really on the nose and tragic all the way through but they're just funny people in general so they kind of saved it for me but it's just awful to be shoved this horrible couple in a romantic <laughs> comedy that i don't like and they also hate um i mean we've got to move on but just quickly henry i mean you have got some comedic giants here you have got eddie murphy and julie louis dreyfus you've also got um david duchovny and neil long who i personally thought were a bit wasted in this film but are there times where they kind of pull this film from the depths of awfulness? I don't think so. It's the kind of... It's like the Judd Apatow problem of kind of everyone getting to just improv and just, like, 
keep going. And that, I think, is why there aren't really any jokes, is that the kind of fragments of slivers of jokes that exist are stretched out for these, like, agonizingly long scenes. There's one scene where I almost laughed a bit, where it's uh, Jonah Hill and Eddie Murphy in a car, and they're listening to the Kanye West and Jay-Z song together. And Jonah Hill's like, I love this song. And Eddie Murphy's like, oh, yeah, what's the title? Which inherently is like, okay, mildly amusing bit that extends for five minutes <laughs> and then loops back around and the song is played at the end, which is just, I don't know, I, I didn't... There, there is worse stuff on Netflix than this. There's worse... I don't think Judd Apatow <laughs> was even attached to this, but it was, you know, not as bad as The Bubble, which he did last year. It, it sits, doesn't it, in that Judd Apatow thing as well as very privileged people moaning for two hours. Yep. None of these people are badly off. Not, you know, okay, outside, you know, outside of any other issues with it, none of these people, they're all living a very, very nice life in LA and they just moan at us for two hours. Yeah. Two uh, hours. Two I mean, hours. <laughs> two hours, yes. I mean, if anybody wants to see the film after those reviews, you can. It, it's on Netflix and it is a certificate 15. But don't. Watch <laughs> <laughs> 21 Jump Street again. Um, <laughs> but we've got to move on to our, to our last film of the show and then we're going to talk about the Oscars. This is Plane. Captain Torrance, Flight Commander. How can I help you? Fugitive extradition. Oh, is he dangerous? What did he do? Homicide 15 years ago. I don't want to scare the rest of the passengers. I'm afraid you're stuck with us, Captain. Get him on board. Let's have a good flight. We're cutting right through the top of the storm. Listen, keep everybody in their seats. No exceptions, all right? Okay, so we are finishing with action movie Plane, which stars Gerard Butler as pilot Brody Torrance, who saves passengers from a potential plane crash um, when they were hit by lightning and they land on a war-torn island. Um, actually, similarly to a film that we've talked about earlier, we have another hostage situation as most of the passengers are, are taken by rebels. So Gerard Butler has to work with um, Louis Gaspar to save everyone. Sorry, Louis Gaspar, that's the character's name. The actor is Mike Holter. Um, so... Okay. Uh, Luke, I think you said you quite enjoyed this, didn't you? Yeah, um, embarrassing uh, to say that I think this is the film that I've enjoyed most this week. And we've, it's not embarrassing? Yeah, and we've reviewed two Oscar contenders. Um, <laughs> Says a lot but about the Oscars. <laughs> Gerald Butler is a, uh, a divisive figure, I think. You know, he's he's makes these films that you could easily laugh at. Films like Geostorm, in which he has to stop weather from killing everyone. <laughs> And Plane is only slightly less preposterous. You know, it's a film where he's an action star, but also an airline pilot, and they come up with this backstory where he's an RAF soldier man. So, you know, when the plane goes down, and you know, it's the second film this week in which someone in the Philippines gets has to solve, save people from kidnappers. Um, you know, it's only, you know, it's like you wink and you go, yeah, this is great. You know, it's Gerard Butler here now. It's, he's not an airline pilot. Once he's taken off his uniform, it's just Gerard Butler in a T-shirt. Um... But I, I love these kinds of films. Yeah. Um, Gerard Butler, he's got this, you know, he makes these sort of dad films. I'm not a dad, but I appreciate these, <laughs> this sort of more moderate revisionist version of sort of these 90s action films, like your Schwarzenegger and your Sloan films, where they're, you know, it's, here's your, here's your star. He's, you know, he's got a different name now and he's in some silly high concept. Um, it borrows a lot, this film, from the sort of the Bruce Willis, every man. Um, you, you know, you might say, you know, people have 
derided the title of the film Plane. You could say that it could have been called Fly Hard. <laughs> um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here all week. <laughs> and and I, I just thought, you know, it's you know, it's not groundbreaking. It's not particularly good. Um, it's obviously clunky and it's sort of structurally unsound. But I had a nice time while I was watching it. Good, Stuart. Do you do you agree with Luke there? Because I think actually maybe I've been a bit mean. I haven't seen the film, but looking at the trailer of of what I thought it would be, it sounds like it, maybe it's a bit better than that. It's perfectly fine. I mean, it's not amazing. It's, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't hold itself in high regard. It doesn't say I'm amazing. I'm not an Oscar contender. It's very honest about that. But it's it's a good word. It's a ninety minute film, but perhaps a little bit longer. I went and rocked up and saw it after work. I was very pleasantly surprised by how it sort of chugged along and it was a perfectly enjoyable bit of time. It wasn't... Yeah, it, 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 it's not groundbreaking cinema. It's not terribly fantastic technically. The performances aren't amazing, but it's just quite a nice little film to to sort of kill some time and, to, and just to sort of um, switch off in front of. And considering some of the sort of rather... Um, intense things we've watched in, in recent episodes, Oscar nominees and three hour long intense emotional roller coasters. like, oh this is a nice relaxing comparison. I wonder which film you're talking about there. Um, <laughs> Henry just final word from you then um, it, it, it looks like it kind of follows the kind of old school rules of an action film as Luke sort of alluded to, was there enough there for you to enjoy? Uh, there was not I, oh, I'm okay. shocked I'm the one, here, the only one here that seems to hate this film I feel like I'm in crazy land. I, I just... <laughs> the thing is, this film needs to be so much stupider than it is. It's so miserable and grey and everyone takes themselves so seriously. I just wanted to have a bit of fun. And, like, I could have had some fun if some of the, like, the gore or the effects were practical, but they're not. They're all, like, CGI. There's one bit where someone gets shot with a sniper rifle and their internal organs become external organs. <laughs> and that was kind of fun, but that was it. And that's at the end of the film. I oh. just wanted so much stupidity and there was nothing oh I'm nostalgic for Moonfall now <laughs> Moonfall <laughs> I did not expect so much emotion from you Henry <laughs> quickly Stuart final quickly. word Mike Coulter who plays Luke Cage and as the film shows Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe correspondent that I was particularly excited by going in <laughs> seeing in something else that wasn't Marvel <laughs> OK, well, that's good. That's something positive we could end on, <laughs> apart from that outburst from Henry. OK, if you would like to make up your own mind, you can see Plane. It's showing at cinemas and it is a certificate 15. Available to watch even if you're not a dad. <laughs> even if you're not a dad. Good point. Thank you, Emma. OK, so we've got a little bit of time now where we can talk about the Oscars because last Tuesday um, the Academy Award nominees were announced. Um, just quickly, for the benefit of, our, of the listeners, I'm going to read out the... Best Picture nominees and then quickly go around and everyone tell me what they're rooting for and then we'll see if we've got time for, for some more chat around the acting nominations, for example, at the end. So, up for Best Picture, we've got All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inisherin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Faithfulmans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness and Women Talking. Uh, Stuart... Every anything there shining for you? Everything everywhere because the only one of those films I've actually seen. Oh, <laughs> great start. Thank you. Ashley? Um, I did love The Banshees, actually, but I think I was more surprised by it than how good it was. Tar really stuck with me. I did, yeah, I'd give it to Tar, maybe. Emma? 
I'm pretty sure it's going to go to everything everywhere, but as we, well, I don't know if anyone listened to that show, but I was not a big fan of that film. I'm out of step with the norm. I would, I would love to see Elvis get it, but it won't do. So maybe I'm going to root for Banshees because I think this is going to be a Banshees uh, everything everywhere race, to be honest. Henry? I mean, first, I feel like I owe a public apology to Emma. I said Top Gun was not going to get nominated for Best Picture back when it came out. Should not have been. And I have... Should have been. Well, I'm Save eating cinema. My, either way, I'm eating my words, regardless. And you're so. going to get... And you want that to win? Well, you know, <laughs> I, there's stuff I'm rooting for more. I'd love Tarv, because it's just odd. But I think Everything Everywhere just has that kind of... It's like outside a thing of, like, everyone will go, well, no one else is going to vote for it, so I'll vote for it. The kind of way that Parasite won, I feel like, is possible. Or Coda, even. Uh, Coda was bad. No, Coda, sorry, oh, Coda sorry. was all right. I quite I liked like Coda. Coda. <laughs> I thought Coda was a bad win. Well, <laughs> thank, thank you for the Oscar 2022 preview. <laughs> 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 I, actually, I, I want everything everywhere all at once to win, but unlike, I actually think it won't win, but it's the one that I'm rooting for. Who do you think will win? Um, probably Sorry, Banshees. Yeah. Banshees. Okay. Yeah. I, think it, I think that's, I think that, well, I haven't read the odds, but I bet they're the favourites. I think it is that race. Uh, I'd like Elvis or Banshees to win. Um, I don't think Everything Everywhere will win. Uh, I don't want it to anyway. I think Tar is going to win because it's the film that's most about a topic, which tends to be the one that clinches it in the end. Do you know what? I would not be surprised, and I don't think many people around here would be happy about this, but I would not be surprised if the Fablemen snuck in and, and won it. Well, because Steven Spielberg was robbed last year for West Side Story, or two years ago, that should have won Best Picture, because that is a gorgeous, gorgeous... I haven't seen the Fablemen I totally yet, agree with you. But maybe they'll feel, maybe the Academy will feel guilty, as they should do for their many terrible choices. They have not nominated <laughs> Till for a single... Thing. Which was comes to my next question, which was going to be, what is missing from the list of nominees? And Emma, I know you have a particular... I have a particular... I, I'm really, really annoyed that Danielle Debwiler was not nominated for Till. I reviewed the film. I wouldn't have necessarily put it up as best film. I probably wouldn't, in fact, it's, it's formulated, but she actress. was incredible and if that performance you know if, if Anna de Armas in Blonde was, was has got a nomination over that performance I haven't seen to Leslie but we all know the and, and, I, and I'm very I'm very fond of an, and, Andrea Riceboro as an actor, actress we all know that that was some bizarre campaigning right there but to have no Viola Davis from The Woman King and no Daniel Debweiler in the nominations is and to have maybe Michelle Williams as a leading actress for The Fablemans no, no. it smacks it, it just it's, it's embarrassing Anybody else got something that they think was snubbed that they'd like to bring to the table? Anything missing? I don't know. I think actually this is like one of the best best actor like sets mm. in a while. Usually best actor I find is an incredibly boring category where it's just like, right, well, who played the, the real life person? But actually, I think this is a really strong thing. They are all first time so nominees. Yeah. Really? Every single, Every single one of them one is of the them. first time nominees. Yeah. So nice. I think from that point of view, that's really cool. I think I'd quite like to see Austin Butler take that one because... Mm. Which, you know me and Lorca. Well, I know, but I didn't love Elvis as much as you two <laughs> at all, really. But I do think he was brilliant as Elvis so I think that would be quite nice to see to see him one thing I was going to say and I don't know who wants to come in on this but when we're looking at the best director nominees once again we haven't got any women on the list and I feel like there are a couple that that should have been included anyone want to come in on that I mean so I know it hasn't come out yet but I saw it at London Film Festival women talking is great yeah. Sarah Polly would have just been a very easy just like slot that right in there instead of like Ruben Ostlin perhaps you could have just put her in there very easily. Women Talking is like a great film and it's, like I say, you just, I, I don't really understand what's happened Do here. we think that best film and best director will be split? 
Because yeah. it's interesting yes, now, obviously, because they do. have now that long list of films, don't they? So you've got more choices for Best Picture, and then you've still only got five directors. So do we think that the Daniels will get it sewn I, I, up? I wouldn't be upset if the Daniels got it for directing, because they probably deserve it. They did the most with what they had, but it's not nowhere near the Best Picture. But it is, but like you said, but I think the direction, yeah, the direction was, was probably the best thing of that, and I didn't, I didn't really enjoy that film at all. Just very quickly, <laughs> I keep saying, just very quickly before we close, Luke, you just wanted to come in and say something about Best International. Oh, yeah, I think we've got a really strong international feature... Um, this year and I know that some people are going to be raving about All Quiet on the Western Front <laughs> that would be me um, <laughs> but I just wanted to give a big shout out to uh, Argentina 1985 which was at the London Film Festival last year I thought it was a really terrific um, film and uh, that's won one of the major awards right did that mm. bring Golden Globe yeah. yes yes it did sorry um, okay that's great I want to thank you all very very much for your thoughts that's all we have time for today I am very sorry to say but our next show is coming up on the 18th of February where we will be talking about lots but I think one of the big things we'll be talking about and Stuart will be delighted with this is um, Ant-Man Quantum Mania from Marvel thank you very much and goodbye The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio